Well, thank you so much for uh, having me out. I'll begin with a public service announcement and to defend my credibility, which I've been warned is not really what we should do. Uh, But I've been accused of something in front of you all by your pastor. And I'm pretty sure biblically that's you've brought a charge against an elder (laughs) without multiple witnesses. As a student in the doctor of ministry, I do all my own homework. I study for all my own papers. I don't have a research team. And Austin is wrong. So just let the record stand. Uh, I'm going to try to jump in here. First, though, just let me say I'm so grateful for for your pastor, for Austin here, and for his friendship and kindness to me. Uh, I don't know how anyone preaches after uh, the the stand-up comedy thing that just went on. Uh, But congratulations to the two of you. I'll expect the invite uh, in the mail to your (laughs) wedding. But it is good to be with you all. I sure do love Grace Church, love TMU. Uh, never been a big fan of UCLA or USC, uh, but, you know, and I figured I would just double down by letting you all know. I, I passed her in Arizona, and we brought the heat last night as well um, in Chavez Ravine. I wasn't supposed to say that, right? Is that problematic? Just right off the cliff. Yes, I think the Lord just has a great way of humbling people who are remarkably blessed on Sundays by just reminding them that He's on the throne on Saturday nights when things go down. All right, are we done? Have I brought you low? Because now we'll bring you high with God's Word. Can go nowhere but up now. I figured we'd start that way. If you're turning your Bibles to Psalm chapter 12, I want to encourage you in a world full of noise and propaganda, and of course there's purpose in even uh, my teasing about the Dodger game. You're going to hear it for two days on the news and everywhere else under the sun, a little more humorous and a little less eternal than uh, perhaps some of the other noise that you'll hear in your life today when there is propaganda and news and noise around you. And one of the challenges as a Christian in today's world is the noise of the world drowning out the promises of God in your life. The anxieties, the depressions, the fears, the worries, all of it beginning to steal your joy and become louder than the voice of God in your life. And I think Psalm chapter 12 is a remarkable text for helping us see that what we experience today is what heroes of old experienced and what all followers of Yahweh experience in their life. It's the great battle or the great war between the noise of the world, the noise of the wicked, and the voice of God and His promises. And so, I don't… Do we stand? Do you guys stand for the reading of God's Word, or do you sit? Let's stand. Okay. Let's show up more of Austin's system here and get in more trouble. Go ahead and stand, as we never do. (laughs) And let's give honor and reverence to the voice of God through Psalm 12. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips, and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he 
longs. Yahweh continues, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. That is the word of God to us today. You may be seated. I love when God talks about himself in the text, don't you? Speaking through the psalmist, but really, God is talking, declaring about himself who he truly is. Uh, how many of you guys this week got the little invasion on your phone from the FEMA thing? Yeah, I got a lot. You got tin hat friends? Yeah, I've got tin hat friends. They watch too much YouTube. Uh, I was warned by my friends who are all, by the way, left brain logical thinkers. I mean, successful, young, but successful, hardworking. They hold jobs. They make paychecks. They're not being fired. And they actually make a lot of logical decisions. But suddenly when this thing came up, I had friends texting me and saying, put the phone, turn the phone off and then put it in something called a Faraday bag. Is that a thing? Yeah. I got another friend with a bunker. True story. I'm in Arizona though. So we're a little right of your state. And uh, there's a lot of these things kind of going on. And what I was told, I asked one of my friends, what, what is all this going on? Why do I need to worry about this? He's like, well, I know you're in study and a little out of touch, so let me help you kind of be prepared, Pastor. I said, okay. He said, turn the phone off because when the, when the noise goes off, this FEMA thing, uh, it's going to interact with particles in your body if you took the vaccine. I'm going, wow, this is some real end time stuff here. We're like off the reservation. My friend said, yeah, that's all the, the news, kind of all the warnings. It's going to interact with, with particulate matter in your body. I said, well, if I didn't take the vaccine, wouldn't that work against their agenda? Like, don't they want me? Don't they want the people who didn't take it? And then there's the other crazy people who say it was the mark of the beast and all of this stuff going on. And so uh, I said, well, what's the purpose? They said, because Bill Gates wants to control the population. So he's going to use this FEMA thing to kill a bunch of people, and at that point, it just, I was lost. You've got that. But more seriously, in today's world, besides the FEMA warnings, which mine went off, by the way, in the middle of recording a podcast. It was very inconvenient. I had the phone on, evidently, and I'm still here, so I don't know about the YouTubers. But in whatever case, I think there's a spectrum of noise, things that don't matter. And I'm a sports guy, but sports things that really can control your emotions that ultimately will be over and then there'll be an off season and then they'll do it again and either disappoint you or there'll be a parade. And then in the end, like many coaches have said, so what, now what? We do it again and again and again. There's just humorous things like the FEMA warning and crazy conspiracy theorists on YouTube. But there are serious noises in the world today that you and I deal with. There are people who can cause anxiety in us by uh, telling us about certain things that might happen if we don't this, that, or the other. There may be anxieties or fears in your own mind as you begin to think about your life. One of the great worries for a lot of people, no matter what your age or stage, is the future. Wouldn't you agree? What about tomorrow? What about maybe marriage? I remember talking to one gal recently, and she was lamenting uh, the return of the Lord. And I said, why? Why is this a problem for you as a believer? She said, well, I want to be married. If he returns before I get lost on a trail while my husband-to-be waits for me to put a ring on it, you know, I won't have had that experience if the Lord returns. Then there's fears over money. There's worries about the future. But maybe there's even more serious concerns. What about when you're mistreated? 
What about when it seems as though the people making all the wrong decisions are winning, and you are walking obediently, and you are being faithful, and you are worshiping, and you're serving, and you're giving of yourself to the Lord, a life of worship laid down, and yet the things that you expect aren't happening. And even worse than that, Not only are the things you expect not happening for you, the things that aren't supposed to happen for the wicked are happening. They're being blessed, it seems. Everything's going really well for them. And the cry of the human heart begins to say, God, do you see this? God, where are you? I thought if I was obedient, you would bless me. I thought if I did all the right things, then everything would work out for me. Why are the wicked winning? This particular psalm is set in a time where David was enduring that kind of war in the heart. He's crying out to God regarding the lies of the wicked, the propaganda of the unrighteous. And those who, and we'll see it in the text, they use flattery, they're fake, they're manipulative, and they seem to be winning. They're hypocrites, and they're harming people and exploiting people. David is no doubt distraught, frustrated, and concerned. And in the midst of the cry of his heart invades the scene, the voice of Yahweh, the promises of Yahweh, which are a comfort to his people throughout all time. Why? Because his words are true. His words are pure. They're proven. You can bet your life on what God says. They're healing. They're comforting they're preserving. And so, yes, the world is dark. And yes, you and I are going to experience the noise of the world and even watch the success, so-called temporary success of the wicked, wondering, is God seeing this? And then how do I respond? And in the same way, God continues to invade such a scenario with His truth, reminding His people, I'm there. I've spoken and I've got it. Trust me, obey me, and follow me. The pattern of this psalm is prayer, promise, prayer. And what I love about it, and I think we'll see this as we move through the text, is we cry out to God, we pray, God invades the scene with His promises, and then there's still so much to pray for and so much to depend on Him for. Now, scholars don't all agree on when we are in David's life, uh, but it was perhaps when he was, as one commentator puts it, a minister under suspicion. He's in Saul's court, and Saul repays David's service and his peaceful playing of the harp with spears, a minister under suspicion. Or perhaps it was when he was a man without a country, when he was hiding in caves, living like a rogue exile. Or perhaps it was when he was a monarch in exile, when his own son Absalom who was hanging out at the city gate saying, you know, the king's too busy for you. You bring your problems to me. I'll listen to you. I'll be there for you. And, and like a, an early shadow of Judas the betrayer, we have Absalom, the son of the king who uses cunning and manipulation to undermine his own father. Uh, perhaps, like you, David is dealing with lies slander, gossip, false words, what one friend of mine likes to call the dirty dealers in your life. They're deceptive. They're malicious. 
They harm the innocent. They exploit the vulnerable. So many people in our world today operate that way, and it seems even still one of the enemy's favorite strategies is to invade the church this way. And no matter how strong the church seems to be and how strong we feel like we are, it's as Martin Luther once said, wherever God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel next door. It seems the wicked are always on our heels, finding a way to upend our joy. The words of liars threaten to drown out those who love the truth and live by the truth. In this situation, Yahweh invades the scene with truth. And His revelation of promise is an answer to David's prayer. Maybe you've pondered, God, are you seeing this? Are you going to do anything about them? Look at the way they mock you. Look at the way they think they know all things. Yahweh is a God who answers such questions. We're going to look at two things today. The first is the propaganda of the wicked. The second, the pure promises of God. The propaganda of the wicked and the pure promises of God. In contrasting these, I think you'll be so encouraged to know that no matter what you're facing and no matter what this world throws at you and no matter what injustices or challenges you're working through in your heart, God's Word is tested and true, and you can stand on it. Look at verse 1 with me. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. The propaganda of the wicked here is seen immediately. David sees the wicked increasing and the righteous decreasing. The men of God are disappearing, and the lawless ones seem to be thriving. They're multiplying. The word help here, Hebrew word that translates deliver. He's asking God to intervene. Help, deliver, pull me out of this. And as with many of the Psalms, there are prophetic undertones here. As even in our day, the antichrist agenda of Satan unfolds, and we too, in a like manner, say, God, it seems as though the narrow way is narrower than ever before. So few are on it. And so wide is the path that leads to destruction. It seems like delusion and darkness are winning on all fronts. And he prays this because look at verse 2. This is what they're doing. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart, they speak. The words of the wicked are filled with propaganda and slander and false flattery. And this phrase is one to circle and remember in your own mind and with a double heart. It literally translates in the Hebrew, a heart and a heart. This is the person who talks out the sides of their mouth. This is the person who betrays your trust. This is the person with ulterior motives. They have a secret agenda. And I don't know about you, but on a personal level, that's one of those things that I really struggle with. Anybody have a high kind of J in whatever those tests are? Justice. One of the things that really gets me going is when people have a secret agenda. Because it's insincere. It's not genuine. No, I'm a more relational guy. So for me, it's a breach on what genuine relationships should look like. There, there may be things like my wife, for example. There's wonderful things about my wife. I sure do love the way the woman cooks. I do. I've had to go more paleo, more carnivore, because the way she cooks 
gave me the gift of, you know, 25 extra pounds within the first few years of marriage, and so now I behave a little more. But the woman is amazing when it comes to cooking, and she's a great ministry teammate. I love my wife. There's many wonderful byproducts or benefits about my wife, but ultimately, if you had to boil it all down and you said, why do you love Christine? I would say, I just love her because I love her. She's my wife. I just love her. That's why. Here, you have these people that are up to something. There's nothing genuine about them. They don't just want to be someone's friend to be their friend. They don't want to love people just to love people. They don't want to serve or help or do what they do for a pure reason. Oh, no. You can't take their words at face value. You can't take the relationship at face value. So it is with the wicked. And that becomes a point of frustration. As David says, they have a heart and a heart. There's this one heart they seem to be putting forth, but then there's another one behind it. Let me give you three F's to just summarize the way they were and the way their words were. False, flattering, and fake. What an indictment. The way that they are and the way that they talk. This is what David is experiencing. And now think about the context. In Saul's kingdom, all of the whispers in the court about David, all of the slanderous lies. When he's out in the caves, and no doubt people are saying, well, where is he now? Can take care of Goliath? Can't take care of this? Thought he was the anointed one. Thought he was the next in line. Where'd he go? Oh, he's running scared. Oh, some warrior. See, Saul, we told you you were the man. We told you you were the one. Or perhaps it's as his son who's standing in the gates trying to position himself as the, quote, next, is going seemingly unchallenged, as even David's men say, you're going to allow this? He does nothing. Perhaps in your own life, there are times or moments where you want to take things into your own hands. You don't because you want to remain godly, and you see the false, flattering, and fake words and deeds of the wicked seem to be positioning them for the W, for the win. Help, Lord. They're winning the wrong way. And then there's this imprecatory tone in verse 3. Look at it with me. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. He's saying, Lord, do it. Cut them off. Quiet them. Literally, shut them up. Close their mouths. And why? It's the tongue that speaks great things. They're so arrogant. Those who have said, with our tongue, we will prevail. You see the bravado there? Our lips are our own. And then look at this, the most arrogant statement of all. Who's Lord over us? Who's our authority? We're the authority. He prays, Lord, cut them off. Don't allow the liars to prosper. So David seems to know now where to turn when the antichrist agenda of the wicked rises up. And I think already there's applications for us as you think through this and I think through this, is we don't go to take control of the matter with our own hands, if you will. We don't fight evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. More than that, or maybe we might say even before that, before we stand to do anything as the righteous, don't we fall to our knees first in prayer, going to Yahweh, 
asking Him to handle what He will handle perfectly. He pleads with God to bring them down. Show them who's Lord, because they are so arrogant and think they are. They're so impressed with themselves. They've set themselves up as little gods who is Lord over us. And this is how the wicked like to act. Maybe if you're a person here and you get so shocked by that, it really puts you off. I think it helps when we change our perspective and our expectations from how could they or who acts this way to this is exactly how the wicked operate, is it not? If you'll turn over to Revelation chapter 16, I think we have time to flip to the cross-reference. Let me just show you the way the wicked always are. Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 to 21, one of the most vivid pictures of judgment. Sometimes you think, well, surely people will wake up now. Revelation 16 tells us there will still be, in the time of tribulation, a people who are well aware of supernatural judgment coming down, and they will still shake their fist at God, if you will. Pick it up with me in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 16. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of His fierce wrath. John's writing, God remembered. He's going to deal with it. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Just a picture in your mind for a moment of the topography of the land changing. Imagine even creation is running from the wrath of God, the holy, righteous, perfect wrath upon the wicked. And look at verse 21. Maybe some of you thought, I've never seen that before in the Bible. Here you go. And huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And what do they do? They repent. Of course, right? They, they say, sorry, Lord. No, 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 Yahweh, God of heaven and earth, we see now. We lay down. We bow down. Like Job, we put our hand over our mouth. We won't speak again. No. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. God judges them directly. No one is unsure about where the hundred-pound hailstones came from, and they still against God, boast in arrogance and anger. They don't repent. They blaspheme Him. And isn't that the way our society is today? Opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance, and yet people continue to blaspheme God and to live their own way. The response most certainly would cause the righteous to say, God, What are you going to do about this? 
And I think there's a, a helpful warning by way of application that we take care with our own self-righteousness and remember God's mercy upon us. Usually, it helps us to be more merciful towards others when we remember God's mercy and grace towards us. But there is this vein, I think, in every single one of us that still, as God's people, are appalled at the way the wicked seem to win. Now, I go through this pastorally. False teachers shallow churches, men who won't stand for the truth, people who use ministry as kind of their own business, and they think it's about climbing the ladder and becoming something instead of realizing that we are uh, lower galley slaves, as the pulpit across the way loves to call us. Stewards, we're servants. You don't chase a title. You're, you're eager to carry a towel And then you see people that turn ministry into something other than that. They they preach the name of Christ and yet seem to be setting themselves up as sort of a type of Christ. For you, perhaps, it's those who are uh, in the throngs of sexual immorality and sin, and yet they claim the name of Christ, maybe on your college campuses, maybe in some of your places of business or, or your work relationships, maybe even in the local church where people take the grace of God and they use it as a cheap tool to escape whatever mental anguish might befall them if they actually realize their sin is treason against a holy God. All of these things cause the righteous to think or say, how can they get away with this? Their arrogant, deceptive, destructive propaganda is so loud and proud. The wicked thinks their words will win. They think themselves to be God, and yet God is not silent. And that's really what verse 5 is. It's the invasion of His voice and His promises into the propaganda of the wicked. And so we come to now the pure promises of God, the pure promises of God. Yahweh declares, because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, and I will set him in the safety for which he longs. This is God hearing and seeing the puffed up, arrogant words of the wicked. And in David's context, we have to remember that through his eyes first, the way that the wicked are living is afflicting the needy, the poor. These are the vulnerable. They are the righteous who cry out for safety and salvation. Like you and I may be at times, they are exhausted because evil is being exalted. David has cried out, help, save, and deliver, and God has heard, and now He speaks. He promises, and His promises will preserve. And it's got to cause you and I to think even now, whose one breath is mightier? than all the wicked put together. Whose voice silences Satan and his armies with but a word? Our God's. Our God's voice, our God's plan, our God's purposes and His promises always trump the world and its lies. We trust in His words, and there it is in verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. The psalmist being used to write what Yahweh would say about His own words, His own promises, as silver tried in a, in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. 
Now the psalmist begins to shift his eyes from where? The wicked and their ways, the noise of the unrighteous, to what? The same place that you and I turn our eyes or shift our minds when we are having these challenges in our lives. We turn our eyes to where? Jesus. We tune our ears to what? His truth. And it begins to lower the volume of the wicked and turn up the voice of God. His words are refined. They're tested. They're proven. That's what that kind of word picture means. Like silver tried in a furnace, even seven times. They're perfect. They're complete. They lack in nothing. The words of men will deceive. Your God, my God, He does not and cannot lie. The words of men will always fail. The words of God are faithful. The words of men will always fade, but God's promises always endure. I love the way Phillips commentates on this. He says, his words are like a molten, shining river of silver, white hot in intensity, purified again and again. His word is beyond all possibility of any taint or dross. Silver purified seven times has no trace of alloy. Such are the words of God. You know what we say? You say, you don't ever have to doubt God's promises. They're pure and perfect. There's not one part of God's word or his promises to you that merit the response, oh, but God, are you sure? Well, I don't know, but well, maybe not one part. When he says it, it's done. His words are totally dependable, thoroughly reliable, and altogether incomparable. And that's where David finds his peace and his rest and his confidence. And the question really begs for you and I, is that where we find our peace and our confidence? No, some people are, are, are dependent relationally. You know, I really need somebody to give me words of affirmation to make me feel it. Look, that's fine. You can have words of encouragement in your life. I think God in His design for the church has placed people in our life, no doubt, to stir us up and to encourage one another. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that you should encourage the faint-hearted, right? We help the weak. Sometimes we need the strong exhortation. We need people to say things to us. And yet, even without someone saying something to you to affirm you or to help you, you always have the one who's given His Word to encourage you and to strengthen you. God has spoken to you, and you, like the psalmist, can find your security and your trust in the proven and pure promises of God. When men think they've come upon a contradiction in the Word, they are the contradiction. When men think they've broken the Scriptures, it's them who break. I think of the picture here of of God's Word as an anvil upon which every hammer of doubt or criticism or lofty and prideful argument will wear out upon. There's a, a poem that describes this beautifully. It says, Last eve I paused before a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. And looking in, I saw old hammers on the floor, worn by the beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, then with a twinkle in his eyes. The anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's Word for ages skeptic blows have beat upon, yet Though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. 
You've got to think of God's Word as the anvil. The hammers of doubt, the hammers of criticism, the hammers of fear, the hammers of wickedness, the hammers of man's agenda, the hammers of false teachers, the hammers of injustice, and all of these things continue to beat upon the anvil of God's Word, and only one thing will still stand. So, wouldn't you want to base your life upon it? Wouldn't that be the very source you go to for security and for strength? Nothing is as pure and powerful as the words of Yahweh. And so we see in verse 7 this great chorus, You, O Lord, you, Yahweh, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. Now, exegetically speaking, there can be two objects of God's preserving work here, and both have significance. There's evidence that the antecedent to the first them are the, the plural promises of God. So, then the second statement, you will preserve him, is referring to those oppressed and affected by the words of the wicked. And so, what you have here, in all accounts, is a clear statement. God will preserve His people. He will intervene on their behalf. God will also preserve His promises. He will both protect and He will preserve. You've got to know that and get it deep within your mind and your heart so that you live with 100% confidence that in all that you face, you can know and trust in the sovereign Word of God. Uh, Like Noah and his family, you think illustratively from the Old Testament and many of these stories that we just think of or we learn as a child, and these are great, and Noah's ark is this cute little fuzzy thing in my house. I have five young children, and the animals are always very happy. And then I visited the ark encounter over in Kentucky, and they have this, anyone ever been there? You go to that little section, and they have all the children's books from throughout the times past, and they're all very happy. Anyone seen that? And then next to it is this horrific picture of like, I mean, Babylon would be like a compliment. Uh, There are people killing babies. I mean, it's, it's this monstrous display. And what they wanted to do was help us understand that the story of Noah's Ark wasn't a little veggie tale kind of thing. And look at all the happy animals finding their way into the boat. That it was a salvation, a rescue from wrath. It wasn't fuzzy little lions finding their way in and eating grain and the giraffes dumping their little, dunking their little heads under to get in and little, little mice running around and cute puppies and all of these things that we see as children. No. It's the raging waters of hellish judgment pouring down. And where is Noah safe? Where are the righteous preserved? That's how you've got to view yourself in today's world. That's the kind of confidence you should operate with. Also, gratitude as you think that God would save you or I out of this wicked generation is mercy and grace upon mercy and grace. And instead of causing it to breed fear that there's wrath and judgment and wickedness all around us, it should breed such peace. If He saved you, will He not keep you? If He pulled you out, Will He not protect you? I think if you apply this to the way that we interact with Scripture, wouldn't it change the way we view the Bible? It goes from being a chore or some kind of U-version checkbox that you just click so that you can say, I did it! I did it! It's done! 
to suddenly the promises of God through Scripture, His Word is a lifeline for my soul. I need Him. I need His voice. I need Him to speak. Nothing could compare to His promises. I don't want to hear from any other voice. In a world that's searching for security and assurance and protection, I have been given that which will accomplish all those things spiritually. And look, you should plan. You should invest. Go ahead and work. Get a good education. Put your money away. Have a good job. Do all of the prudent things that the Bible also talks about, but understand that material means will accomplish nothing to preserve you or keep you. You can pray a hedge of protection around yourself all you want. Many, a wealthy person have found that what the Proverbs say are true, that wealth just has wings. It keeps flying away. Security in material things is a false sense of security. Everything can go in an instant. What keeps the believer secure? The pure promises of God. What are you living for? The promise of God that He will one day return and restore all things. When false words and slick flattery and double-hearted propaganda and wickedness seems to be wreaking havoc for the righteous, the only question that matters and the only answer you ever need is, what has my God said? And we know the answer. He has promised to preserve His Word and His people. We trust His words above all else, and that means trusting even if it's going to take a little while sometimes for them to come to pass. Hence the structure of the psalm, prayer, promise, and then prayer. You look at verse 8 with me. This isn't David going back to imprecatory prayer or complaint. It just seems to be an acknowledgement The wicked strut about on every side when vileness, the word means worthless things, when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Perhaps you find that to be a discouraging landing point, but it's not. It's the reminder that God knows, He understands that this is not uncommon to the human situation, that we pray and cry out to God. His truth, His promises invade our situation, and yet again, you still need Him, don't you? Another day, another minute, another hour, even another second. We're going to continuously need to relish in God's pure promises and trust that He will preserve us and His promises because evil, wickedness still struts about on every side. In the world you live in, vileness is still exalted. But what are you going to exalt in the world you live in? People still filled with fear and anxiety and worries. But what are you filling yourself with? I think we need God's Word, we say, more than ever before, as we always have. That His promises are what we look to when the wicked oppress the righteous, when the most vulnerable in our society, including children and the unborn, are targeted 
when it seems as though wickedness is winning, when with pride the world around us says, with our tongue we will prevail, who is a Lord over us. We say with confidence, Yahweh is, and we'll trust His promises. Let me give you just a few applications, and we'll land the plane here together. The first is, see Scripture as a treasure, not a chore. It's a treasure for you, not a chore. In fact, if you approach it like it's a chore, what you need most is to stop reading and go to prayer and begin to ask the Lord to change your perspective, to fill you with a hunger that you might long for the bread of life. Perspective is everything. You need the voice of God, especially if the noise of the wicked is drowning out His promises. Number two, you silence the noise by saturating your life with Scripture. Colossians 3.16 is a great passage to just meditate on day after day. Let the Word of Christ dwell within you richly. I like to think of this in terms of garlic. I love garlic. And when you really eat garlic, it'll come out of your pores. Just take that visual and think of God's Word. When it saturates your life, it's coming out of your pores. It's in the bloodline. It's in the vein. You have a thought. It's met with God's Word. You have a desire, an affection. It's met with God's Word. You have a problem. It's met with God's Word. You need an answer. You get it from God's Word. Again and again and again. Let the Word of Christ dwell within you richly. Let it saturate you. And suddenly, the noise of this world is turned down. And the voice of God is turned the greatest compliment perhaps someone could ever pay you is man or sister or girl. I don't know what they call people. I'm getting old. Girl, whatever. You, you're like a walking Bible. It's always the same. I know. What does God say? What does the Word of God say? You want that kind of feedback in your life. It means that you are saturated. And you know the old principle? They steal this and apply it to business. What you feed grows. You'll hear that on some Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan podcast about something. You know, who knows? What you feed grows. Great. Steal it back and use it for spiritual purposes because that's ultimately a biblical principle. What you feed grows. You fuel your inner man, Paul calls it. Your lowercase s, spirit. Fuel your life with the Word of God and watch your spiritual maturity increase and your perspective change. The final application would be smile at the future. I don't mean this to be oversimplified or just some trite, like fortune cookie kind of one-liner. Stop worrying. You're on the winning side. I'm not big on license plate bumper stickers and all this stuff. You know, God's got this and all the hashtag. It really just more like Caleb kind of air one theology. But can we just meditate for a moment on that truth? He does have it, doesn't he? Smile at the future. What if it's persecution? And praise him in the prison. What if it's trial? Oh, perfect. He's going to create an enduring, proven, maturing faith in you. And if it's blessing, oh, pray for his protection on your own ego that you don't suddenly think, I've made it. Like the man who said, I'll just build bigger barns. I've got it. Smile at the future. Why? 
He's going to do exactly what He says He will do. Unbelievers fear death. Believers know to live as Christ, to die as gain. Unbelievers are overwhelmed and overrun by this world. Believers, we know Christ has overcome it. And unbelievers are crippled with questions they don't have answers to. Believers have the light of God's promises to navigate this dark world. What overcomes the propaganda of the wicked? Same thing that did in David's day, the pure promises of Yahweh. Let me pray for you. Father, there's a wide swath of life stages or contexts here, and tomorrow morning we'll all go out into different areas and spheres, whether on a college campus, whether a mom at home, whether in the business world, whether on an airplane traveling, whether on the mission field, wherever we go, my prayer is that when, like David, we cry out to You, our God, when the false, fake, flattering words of the wicked seem to be winning, that we as Your people will experience the same peace and comfort and dependence as David, knowing You have spoken. You will preserve. Your promises are true. They are everlasting. Silence the noise in our lives that the wicked ways of this world would not create anxiety and fear and overpower, but rather turn up your voice in our life through your word. Thank you for the Psalms, the blanket of comfort that they are, and for your everlasting promises. We pray all this in Jesus' name.